Hey, um, let me tell you something that's happening next week at the risk of uh, stealing Tiffany's thunder during announcements. But um, next week, hold the applause till the end, please. Um, next week, I will not be preaching. <laughs> no, uh, because next week, um, Justin, the pastor of our partner church, will be here preaching. And so, um, you know how we got started today and there were just a few of us? And then now there are a lot of us. Next week, let's get started with a lot of us, you know. Is that, is that cool? No, really, um, I just, uh, if you are thinking next week about, you know, like it's cold again and you're sleeping in or you're going out of town, cancel the trip, you know. And, um, but really, I just want to encourage you to be here next week. I'm, I'm super excited. Um, Justin is, is way more exciting than I am, you know, and he's just a super fun guy. But really, I want us to show up just to let him know that we are indeed here for them, praying for them. For the past couple months, we've set aside a time specifically this Sunday, the second Sunday of the month, to, to remind you to pray for them. And so um, I just want him to really know that, that we're here. We give them this huge big check every month. It's like 50 bucks, but we're just trying to give something and get started. But I really want him to know that we're here and we're praying for him. So be here next week. Pray for me. I'm going there to preach. Um, they have service at 2 in the afternoon. So um, if you guys could do me a favor and just say amen a lot today, you know, and stuff like that. Um, and just really try to distract me because that's kind of how it goes. So um, do me that favor and do that for me. Um, but really, be here next week. I'm super excited about that. Um, secondly, uh, small groups start not this Thursday, but the next. And so Tiffany's going to tell you about them at the end of the service, so I'm not going to steal her thunder. But I just wanted it not to seem like just an announcement at the end that small groups get started, because last week we talked about New Year's resolutions and all those different kind of things, and I think what a great way to start off the new year by getting plugged into small group. So, um, Tiffany was going to say that at the end, I'm sure. But anyway, um, so um, just want to see all that. But, but specifically, before we get started, second Sunday of every month from here till a long time from now, we just want to take some time at the beginning of service to pray for Justin and Faith Movers Church. So we want to do that today. God, we pray for, um, for Justin and the services that they'll have at Faith Movers Church in just a few hours. And pray now as people just begin to wake up and, and get ready for that. And, and maybe they don't even know they're going yet. Um, but God, I just pray that you would begin to prepare their hearts. And prepare them just to, to be ready to worship you today. God, I pray for all the things that they're doing over there that we don't really even know about. And, and all the things that their people are struggling with. And all the things that they're going through. God, we, we take rest in the fact that you know exactly uh, what they're dealing with. And what their struggles are. And, and everything that's going on. And so God... God, we just pray that you would be the faithful God who is there for them, who gives them rest and gives them peace. And, and we just pray for some energy for Justin and for his wife and for, for their pastoral team and their leadership team there, that they would lead well and serve well. And God, we just thank you for this humble opportunity to, opportunity to be a small part of what they do. Uh, God, we praise you that you are the King of Kings and that you are completely in control. In Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, let me ask you guys a question. Um, do any of you guys have any enemies? Anybody want to raise their hand? Anybody want to point to their enemy? No, I'm just kidding. Um, so uh, not like a sword-wielding, tank-driving enemy, but, you know, like the sister you can't get along with or, you know, the coworker that you can't stand, everybody who voted for the other guy. You know, like like enemies very practically. Um your ex, your in-laws, 
You know, all those people that you can't get along with, and you, you would say, well, they're not really my enemy. I just can't stand the sight of them, you know. Um, and, and so you don't really consider them an enemy, just somebody you don't really like. But, but, you know, the biblical idea of an enemy is somebody who persecutes you. So, you know, makes, makes life hard for you, and they do it on purpose, right? That, that's your enemy. That, that, that is absolutely someone who persecutes you, or at least someone who makes life easier on themselves at your expense. That's your enemy. And that kind of expands the playing field to all the people that when the Bible says enemy, who it's talking about. Sometimes I am my wife's enemy because I make my life easier at her expense when it's the middle of the night when Molly was younger and she cries and I do the possum, you know, or I just play dead. And, uh, and I make her life harder. Uh, at, I, I make my life easier at her expense. Um, but really, enemies. He, here's the question about enemies. Um, what do we do with these people? And what's a real God-honoring response to them? You know, like, what's a real way that we can retain some dignity and not feel like we've given in to everything and still have a God-honoring response? And the question is, number one, can we just leave them alone? Can we just not talk to them, never be in their company, uh, never go around them? I mean, they're doing way worse than that to us, so that would really be treating them way better than they're treating us. So can we do that? Or do we really have to seek some kind of reconciliation? Do we really have to make some kind of effort to make all that right? How can we respond to difficult people, the challenging sibling, the obnoxious brother-in-law, the hateful boss, all those different kind of people, you know, all of our modern-day enemies, how can we respond to all those people? So here's what we do. The next three weeks we jump into topics like that. Enemies, grudges. There was a time in my life where I was pretty bad at holding down a job. Um, some, sometimes we're pretty bad at holding down relationships, but we're great at holding grudges. And if there's one thing we can hang on to, it's all the things that we don't like about somebody else. Enemies, grudges, and then finally just kind of ending with being free and overcoming evil. And, and if there, there are a ton of books out there about living your best life now, and some of them are good and some of them are absolutely terrible, but I really want to end with talking about how in a godly sense you can be free from all that and really live your best life now. So today let's jump in and answer that first question. Without giving in to your enemy and without giving them everything they've been trying to get out of you, how can you respond to your enemy in a way that is God-honoring? So here we go, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us to do something that I think is crucial in these situations. When you think about how you're going to respond to somebody, Ephesians chapter 2 gives you a pretty good, a pretty good rubric for how to do that. But here's what we do when we go to Ephesians chapter 2, and we do it really unintentionally with this passage, and, and, and it causes us a ton of trouble. When we make this mistake as we read this passage, it causes us to aggravate situations and make them worse. It causes us to become the antagonist, and, and now all of a sudden, someone else started the fight, but now we're the one absolutely making it worse. And we give the other person all the credit for everything that's going wrong in the, in the relationship or in the lack of a relationship, but some of it comes down to us. In the same faulty way that we look at this passage and the way it affects our relationships, uh, it does a lot with the church as well. 
And sometimes when we make this mistake with it, with this passage, it causes us to look around, especially as a church leader, and say, man, why are we people that, that we pray, but we do with so little fervor and so little affection? And we pray like we're not really sure if it's going to be answered. And, and why do we sing, but yet with, without enthusiasm? And why do we sing, but we look around and there's so many expressionless faces? And why on earth are, 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 are our hearts not just consistently breaking, knowing that there are people that we love and that we care about that don't know Jesus? Like, why are those things, why don't they bother us? Dr. Bill Wyden said, the greatest thing in the world is to be saved. Very simply. I'm sure he's not the only one. The greatest thing in the world is to be saved. And when we make this mistake with this passage, it causes us to look around and say, you know, why isn't, this is what Bill Wyden said, he said, why isn't, this is a question, why isn't the experience of salvation like the first morning of vacation with the sun rising over the lake and the air crisp and clear and the fish biting and the bacon sizzling, you know, all the good stuff and all the family healthy and happy. Why don't we talk about salvation like that instead of, instead of being a follower of Jesus and doing what is right? We talk about it like it's a gray, drizzly day uh, with a hole in the tent and everybody's complaining. And sometimes we look around at our lives and following Jesus, and that's the description. And, and why is lukewarm devotion for Jesus so much more prevalent than this heartfelt, real devotion? And I think the thing that causes our relationships to go bad is the same thing that causes those kind of things to be prevalent, and I think it's because of the way that we treat this passage. So here we go. Ephesians chapter 2, start in verse 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Very simply it says, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. Here's what we do with this passage. We're going to read some more in a minute. But here's the thing that we actually, we don't, we don't physically do it, but, but practically we just stop right there. And the way that we live, we pay close attention to, to verse 10. This is how we think of ourselves. We are God's masterpiece. I mean, we know, you and I know that we have problems. I never told anybody that I'm perfect, right? But, um, but we look at ourselves like we're the masterpiece. We're the ones that are doing the things right, and someone else is the one that is doing the things wrong. And we forget that even with our, especially with our enemies, much of the blame for what happens lies with us. And we forget how far it may go if we just totally owned up to our part of the problem. And we stop at verse 10. We say, we're the masterpiece, we're the ones getting it right, and someone else is the one getting it wrong, right? And that's the big problem. But let's keep reading. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. And then he says, but don't forget. Don't forget that you Gentiles, Gentiles, that's you and me, unless any of you guys are Jewish. Um, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders, you were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. That's where you used to be. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to Him through the blood of Christ. Here's what he says. Here's the problem that we make. Sometimes we forget who we are. 
and and as followers of Jesus, for those of us that are, uh, sometimes we forget where we've been and we forget who we are and we forget what we're capable of apart from Christ and we and, and we forget that the only reason we're capable of doing any good at all is because God is good and he lives with us uh, apart from Jesus we're all just sinners with a lack of hope right a lack of hope for eternity and scripture says where that ends is a place where torment doesn't end and there is no rest and you and I deserve that And that's where we were all headed before we began to follow Jesus. And here's the truth. Remember that no matter what your brother, your sister-in-law, liberals, conservatives, whoever it is that's on your mind that is your enemy, remember that they are not that different from you. And in the big scheme of things, and when Scripture talks about who we are and what we're worthy of, we're pretty much the same. Somebody said one time, it's like, us looking at them sometimes is like one Nazi looking at another Nazi saying, you killed 20 people, I only killed 10. You're such a terrible person. And sometimes we put ourselves so far above our enemies, and the truth is we're both pretty low. And we forget who we are, and it affects our relationships. As you keep in perspective who you are, and what Jesus has done for you, and what he's brought you from, it'll change the way you treat people. And it'll change the way that the church looks to everybody else. See, here's what happens when you begin to change the way you think and it changes the way you act. All of a sudden, people begin to feel welcomed by you rather than rejected by you. You ever had somebody say that you weren't that welcoming or they didn't feel like you were that nice or word got around to you? And you were surprised by that because you consider yourself to be nice or welcoming or you don't mean to come across that way. But people are looking at you and, and, and the things, and when you get this feeling like, you know, you're in the wrong and I'm in the right, especially with regards to your enemies, man, they absolutely feel that. And when you begin to realize that you are low just like they are low, it changes the way you act towards them and the way that you present yourself in front of them. And all of a sudden, they feel welcomed by you rather than rejected by you. Here's the other thing that happens when you begin to live that way. People begin to see Jesus in you. And rather than wondering if Jesus really exists because of you, because you go to church and, and, and you claim to be a Christian, rather than wondering if any of, any of that is real, they begin to see Jesus in you. And that's what happens when we remember who we are. <clears throat> I, did a, uh, I was at graduation yesterday uh, for one of the schools that I teach at. I had, this, had the privilege of speaking for this student. He won. The school has like kind of two big awards, and he won one of them. And he was one of my students. He'd been in a lot of my classes. This student came to me uh, the first day of class, and uh, he was, this is an alternative school, and they have a terrible attendance. So the first day of class, he was the only student there. And, uh, and he shows up, and, and he says to me that first day, he says, I just don't want to be one of those guys who, um, I don't want to be one of those guys who has no money and isn't doing anything. And I was like, well, I can respect that, you know. So, um, so he takes my class. He, he does really well, puts in the work. Started off kind of rocky, but finished really well. Uh, there's an opportunity at the end of class for him to get an internship. So uh, we get him an internship. He begins to get paid to work. They teach him how to weld. And um, finishes that, gets a little closer to graduation. And, uh, and then there's an opportunity for him to go work for a Tulane's Earn and Learn program. So, uh, so he does the interviews, gets everything together, uh, gets all of, his, all of his stuff turned in. He passes it all. And so he gets accepted in the Earn and Learn program. So he's like, now he's, now he's about to graduate and he's got a job. They pay 15 bucks an hour, 
which I went through a four-year degree and didn't make 15 bucks an hour, right? So that's pretty good to me. Uh, he's making 15 bucks an hour. He's getting some free education at Delgado through Tulane's program. Um, man, doing to me really, really well. This kid got to alternative school um, because he had been fighting all the time, um, because he was pretty fearful. Uh, one thing that he used to say in addition to that to me on the regular, if it was just he and I, is he had this real fear that he wouldn't live very long. And at first I'm like, it just seemed like real paranoia. Uh, and then all of a sudden, and then he started kind of telling me his story. And it turns out in the, in the one semester that he was in my class, he was robbed twice. Just walking home and somebody robbed him at gunpoint. Um, had been doing twice. Uh, three people that were close to him, either family or close friends, were killed over the course of the year that I, that from the first semester and second semester. And, and so if you're getting robbed at gunpoint and people that you know really well are getting killed, then it, then all of a sudden it makes sense that you may have a little bit of fear that you may not live very long. And so this kid lands in alternative school for fighting because he just has some fear. You know, some fear that people are out to get him because they probably are. Some, some fear that people, you know, that if he's not respected, that he's going to be robbed. You know, all those different kind of things. And so he has all these actions totally based in fear that really don't represent who he really is. But if all you see is just what he does, and it looks pretty bad. And have you ever thought that your enemy may be acting out in fear, maybe jealousy, maybe anger, lots of emotions that you have all the time that lead you to do things that you're not very proud of. Maybe they've been taken advantage of so they keep people at a distance. Maybe success seems to come easier for everybody else, and so they're a little bit jealous and they act out in that way. Maybe they're angry because you made some good decisions and caught a break and they didn't get the same breaks. Here's what we do. Here's what I did as I was writing this. And, and if you're not there, you're super spiritual. But the rest of us are there. When you think about that person in your head, and I tell you maybe why they're doing that, you tend to say, I see how you would think that, but the person in my head is not, that's not them. Right? Everything has been good for them, or whatever they got, they did to themselves. But the truth is that everybody is acting in that way. And in the same way that you have done some things in those moments when you had those emotions that you weren't proud of and you acted towards someone in a way that you hope they won't always remember, that you hope doesn't define you, that person has done the same thing. And absolutely, they're acting in some sort of fear. And so the truth is, in a world where fear and anger and bad decisions and hostility abound, what we have to recognize is that Jesus brings peace. And, and there are always going to be people that are acting out of all these things, but Jesus brings peace. Verse 13 says, if you remember, but now, but now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. If there's going to be any unity between you and your enemies and you and the people that can't stand you and that you can't stand, it's going to be because you prayed fervently for it. And because only Jesus can bring about that peace. See, what happened in verse 13, what that's alluding to, is that Jesus came. Jesus came and now all the divisions are gone. Specifically, this is talking about divisions within the church. This is pretty challenging here. He's saying that 
you know, Middle Eastern, black, white. I guess everybody here was Middle Eastern, but Middle Eastern, black, white, Native American, whatever it may be, there is no difference within the walls of the church. And don't act like we can't worship together because we're a little bit different because we absolutely can. He says Jesus has torn down the wall of hostility. And the wall that said, that was there, that said we cannot do church together and we can't worship together, all that is gone. Um, on the church side, what I find to be unfortunate is that we've put a lot of energy into rebuilding that wall. We have black churches and white churches, and we have Hispanic churches, um, and, and we have a, a few churches who are, who are churches with a lot of different kind of people in them. But we spend a lot of, and it's not because we set out to make the church that way. It's usually because we live our lives that way. You know, and there are not a lot of people who look a lot different than us in our lives, and our churches kind of reflect that. I mean, that dagger goes right to me too, right? But Jesus says, Jesus came to tear down those walls. The thing is, this is where a lot of your personal relationships are too. There's sort of this wall of hostility, and it got there because of some sort of sin on their part or on your part. And, and, and what Scripture says is it, it just continues to stand there, but the God of peace sent His Son to bring reconciliation not just in the church, but also in your relationships. And it is not meant for that wall to continue to be there. And it says the biggest hammer to tear down that wall and to begin to break all that down is this passage in Luke that is so incredibly un-American that says if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. And it says, if someone, your enemy, slaps you on the cheek, punch him back in the nose. No, turn to him the other cheek also. And it says, if he wants you to walk a mile with him, go two with him, right? And that kind of means if he needs your help a little bit, then you help him a lot. And it means that if someone asks for your shirt and it's really cold like today because they didn't plan ahead or they made some terrible decision and they ask to borrow your shirt, you give them your jacket too and you stand there freezing. And man, that is just not the way that we want to respond to people that are enemies. Instead, what we're thinking is, good, I'm glad you're cold. That's what you get for not planning. Years of not planning, and this is what it gets you. But Jesus says, if we're going to tear down the walls, and if we're going to change things with regards to our enemy, then it's absolutely going to be because we begin to do those things. And instead of prayer, and instead of peacemaking, we just continue brick by brick and situation by situation to build the wall even more between us and our enemies. Ultimately, what you're telling those people, because they know that you're involved in church, and you may think, well, I just kind of go or something like that. But what they see is that you're here, and what they hear when you continue to act in that way, when you don't turn the other cheek and when you don't do the extra thing and when you continue to act in hostility, what they hear is that with Jesus there is room for division and that with Jesus there is room for some hate and with Jesus there is room for disorder and all the things that you do represent Jesus in that way and you completely misrepresent the church and we completely misrepresent Christ when we treat our enemies like they're our enemies. So here we go. How do you respond to your enemy in a way that honors God? You remember who you are. And you remember that you, despite what we have begun to think about ourselves, we're not that different from our enemies. And remember that Jesus and only Jesus brings peace.
and then seek to be a peacemaker and seek to be someone who prays for peace. And then after you've done all that, if nothing changes and your enemy is still set to be your enemy, feel free to shake the dust off your feet and be done with it because you did all that you could. But you've got a long road to go down before you can shake the dust off your feet and walk away and be done with it. There's two simple things you can do. If you're like, where do I start? This person hates me, and I really don't like to look at them. You know, I don't want anything to do with them. Here's where you can start. Number one, ask yourself, where is my heart? I think some of us really like tension. And that's not the case in all of our situations, but some of us really love the tension. And you ask yourself, am I one of those people that really likes the tension? I like to have something to complain about. And I'm not, you're not telling everybody that, but that's really where you are. You like to complain. It gives you good gossip material. Uh, people get to feel bad for you. You know, some, some of us are there. I don't do this. Some things that are really terrible, I wish hadn't happened. Some things that are marginally terrible, I, it makes for a great story. Man, sometimes I just love to tell the story. And when somebody who does me wrong does me even more wrong, I'm like, I'm kind of glad that they did that because now it's really clear to everybody that they're terrible. So first ask yourself, you know, where is my heart in regards to all this? Do I have a heart for them the way that God has a heart for me? Have they made me so angry that I'm not even willing to talk about forgiveness? Is that where my heart is? First, begin to ask yourself, where's your heart? And secondly, ask yourself, what can change? Because you can't do everything, you know? Um, if, if, if you had some family member that was involved in 9-11 and they were killed, there's nothing you can do. You can't go across the world. You can't change foreign policy. So what you can do to people that are your enemies changes with every situation. But ask yourself, what can you change? And what is it that you can do, that you can begin to do, to do something different? The one thing that I guarantee you that you can do is just begin to pray. Because Scripture doesn't say that you are peaceful. Scripture says that you have been united with Christ Jesus. He brings the peace. Begin to pray for some peace. Remember who you are. Remember that Jesus brings peace. God, we praise you for um, for just the truth that... Uh, we don't have to live with anger, and we don't have to live with hostility, and we don't really have to have enemies. We can have people who don't like us, but they don't have to be our enemies. And God, I just praise you for that truth. And God, I pray that we would be people who represent you in a way that is honorable to you, in a way that really looks like you. I pray for me, God, that I would remember that I am not worth that much. And the only value I have is value that I have in you. And God, I just pray that also we would be people that would seek to change things. That rather than being people that bring division, we would be known as peacemakers. And I pray that you would begin to change and bend our hearts towards that. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. You guys come forward for communion.